Hi, my name is Lynn McTaggart. Welcome to my podcast, Living the New Science. In these podcasts, I'm covering some extraordinary discoveries by frontier scientists and other new thought leaders and why this changes everything we think about how our world works and also how we should live our lives. Today, I'm going to share with you an amazing conversation I had with two of my favorite buddies in the new science movement, Greg Braden and Dr. Bruce Lipton. For those few of you who may not know him, Greg Braden is a five times New York Times bestselling author, a scientist, an international educator, and renowned as a pioneer in the emerging paradigm based in science social policy, and human potential. And Dr. Lipton, you may know, is a stem cell biologist, an internationally recognized leader in bridging science and spirit, and a best-selling author of books including The Biology of Belief and The Honeymoon Effect. He's also recipient of the 2009 Goy Peace Award, and Bruce is also the person who put epigenetics on the map. They're both also dear friends of mine, I'm honored to say. And in this conversation, we took a deep dive into some new discoveries in biology and also discussed resilience, how to successfully cope with the crises we face on so many fronts and why that starts with community. Welcome, Greg. Len, it's so good to see you. And Bruce, I'm really happy to be with you today. And I want to welcome everybody from good morning, good evening, good afternoon from all over the world. Uh, this is completely unscripted. I have no idea where this is going. It's a dance. The three of us are going to dance, and so we're going to follow the ladies' lead. So I, I'm going to let you lead us through this, Len. Thank you. Okay, great. And my other buddy, Dr. Bruce Lipton, who essentially developed, dis unearthed, and broadcast to the world the fact that we aren't built from inside out, we're built from outside in. He pioneered epigenetics, and he's been bringing that message to the world ever since. Dr. Bruce Lipton, welcome. Lynn, Lynn, I'm so excited to be here with you and my brother, Greggy. And I'll tell you why, because uh, together, uh, each of us has a realm of understanding and insights that when we put them all together, creates a global awareness of what's going on, why is it going on, where is it going, and uh, knowledge is power. And what we really want to do is empower all of the people on this line with some knowledge to say, uh, we can thrive through this thing that's going on, but knowledge is needed. Absolutely. Well, look, let's dive in. Our ideas for today are to talk about new discoveries that we're finding out about the human body and how that can really help us through these very rocky times. So let's kick off with you, Greg, because I know you've wow. come up with some great discoveries. Well, thank you, Lynn. I, you know, I'm a multidisciplinary scientist, and, and I say that because it gives me uh, the excuse to scour the scientific journals, the tech journals, for the new discoveries so that I can track them, uh, integrate them into my work, share them with our, our community. And I mean, we could do a whole program 
on on just this. There are so many new discoveries on a weekly basis that are are being made, but they're not trickling down into the classrooms and the textbooks. You will not see this stuff being taught to, to medical students. You won't be see it being taught to, to students of biology and life sciences. Uh, and this is important, Lynn, because the bottom line for me is we are absolutely not what we have been told. And we are so much more probably than we've even allowed ourselves to imagine. I'll just let that sink in. Not, not who we can imagine we are, but we're more than what we could ever imagine. And this is one of those beautiful places, you know, where science and spirituality, human potential, and the real world all, all come together in, in, uh, in such just such a beautiful way. And Bruce, I, I love when you say knowledge is power. And I think that's so important because for me, the bottom line is the better we know ourselves, the less we fear change in the world. And the better we know ourselves, the less we fear one another. And the better we know ourselves, perhaps most importantly, the less we fear our own power. And this is what the discoveries are, are telling us, is that we are immensely powerful beings. And when we embrace the deep truth of our own power, here's why this is it's important at any time. But now, with the events unfolding in our nation and in all nations in the world, the better we know ourselves, the less we fear and the less vulnerable we become to other people's ideas of what our lives and what our world should look like, because we're empowered to make our own choices and our own decisions as sovereign beings, as sovereign biological beings. So I, I just want to share some of these discoveries. I mean, I'm not even sure where to begin. I'm going to begin with the brain. There are over 3,300 new classes of cells that have been discovered in the human brain. 3,300. I mean, we thought we had a pretty good handle mm -hmm. on the brain. Uh, some of them are neurons, new classes of neurons. Uh, the rose hip neuron, for example, is a, a very complex neuron. It took a new scanning device to be able to detect it. And what's fascinating to me about the rose hip neuron, by the way, it's named after the rose hip bud, the, the berry of, of the plant. Uh, number one is that it only is found in humans to our, the best of our knowledge. No other form of life has, no other primates even have the rose hip neuron, it is a specialized neuron that regulates states of consciousness. When we want higher states of consciousness, we've got to engage these rose hip neurons. And, and that is a very exciting discovery. There, there are cells that are not neurons. One of them, fast, fascinating cells, are called astrocytes. Lynn, have you ever heard of an astrocyte? I have, yes. They're, they're <laughs> fascinating because they nourish the uh, the neurons, the astrocytes have to be healthy to support the neurons so the neurons can do, you know, what, what it is that they're doing. But the, the new discoveries aren't limited only to the brain, certainly to, to the, the human body. What we're finding is that we are the only form of life that can self-regulate our own biology. And this is where this work, it it so beautifully is based in the work that Bruce has done for so many years, the epigenetics and Lynn, all the work that you're doing in the, in the research. I think one of the most important 
discoveries is with human uh, immunity, the immune response. I mean, who doesn't want a, a strong immune response in the world? There's all kinds of bugs that are floating through our societies beyond COVID. I mean, you know, COVID's out there, but people were so focused on that, they forgot about everything else. There's all kinds of stuff going on out there. And our first line of response is the uh, the IgA uh, uh, response, the immune, uh, immunoglobin response so that we secrete, the SIGA. And one of the things that was discovered in, in some of the early studies done by the Institute of Heart Math, for example, and I'm going to look at notes because I want to get these numbers exactly right. What they found was that when we are in a, a place where we can feel care and compassion, so just a, in general, a positive response, that stimulates that SIGA response, our first line of immune defense, uh, about 40, 41%, which is, is a good number. But when we consciously, when we intentionally create the coherence between the heart and the brain, heart-brain coherence that so many of us talk about now, we can do that on demand, and it bumps that response from 41% to over 240%. And I, I do I can I just tell a little story really quick, Lynn? Can I sure can I share share a brief story? I remember when I first started working with uh, Roland McCready, the lead scientist at the Institute of Heart Math, and they were documenting the studies of coherence on the immune response. And to be objective, they were sending the results uh, out to independent labs, not telling the labs what was happening. They were just saying, you know. Tell us uh, what what is the the immune levels, the uh, SIGA levels in you know in in these cell samples. And so one of the labs called Roland back and said to him, "Okay, you just got to tell me what is this new antibiotic that you guys are working on because we've never seen a response like we're seeing in these cell samples." And Roland said, "You know." There's no antibiotic. He said, this is a, a natural response from the human body when it is given the conditions that promote this response. And the guy said, oh, come on, you can, you know, you can tell me, you don't have to hide it. And Roland said, really, it's just the human body. And the guy says, oh yeah, sure. You know, they, the thinking is that the human body is not capable of these levels of brain states, levels of consciousness that we're only beginning to understand. We've had to create new brain states called the the gamma brain state, the hypergamma brain state, and now the epsilon brain state, to reflect the the potentials of the human body without outside influence. This is all the things that we do. We self regulate. So whether yeah. we're talking about attaining higher states of consciousness or being the best version of ourselves, strong immune systems. Uh, and everything, the healing response that goes with that, Len, the new discoveries are revealing that we're only beginning to understand just how extraordinary, just how powerful we are. And here's the irony. It's happening at a time in our society when we're being told that we are powerless victims of a world that we have no control over so that we need a savior. And that savior is being touted as technology. We're being told we need technology inside of our bodies so that we can be healthy and successful in the world we're seeing, these new discoveries are now telling us we are the technology. And it's an opportunity for us to step up and become the best version of ourselves, uh, perhaps for the first time in human history. So 
So I just wanted to share those as we launch into this. Yeah. Well, thank you for setting the scene so well, Greg. That was brilliant. I'm going to bring Bruce into this conversation now. Bruce, what have you been discovering about aspects of the human body that are new or are underappreciated that would have a huge bearing on our ability to withstand a lot of the the stress, the trauma that we that we're undergoing right now. Lynn, that's a, a wonderful opportunity to talk about twenty different things. I'm not really sure which one is going to come up right now, but I did want to mention because hey, <laughs> uh, uh, Greg talked about the fact that uh, um, we are the technology. People don't understand. There's a term called biomimicry. And biomimicry is understanding if you look at the technology of the human body, that technology precedes our technology. So in other words, if you can see how cells did something, we can use that technology at this moment. And that's why they look in the body and if the technology of the body is everything that we have on the outside truly came from an understanding of the inside. Cells created community. Cells are uh, like miniature people. And I say that because every function that you have in your body is already present in virtually every nucleated cell in your body. So that means the functions of the cells and the functions of the human happen to be about exactly the same. As a matter of fact, it's because our behavior is to take care of them. <laughs> so whatever our cells need, we have to provide for that. Uh, and it becomes really critical to understand this because if you understand the nature of the cellular community and how it works, there's a technology. Can you have 50 trillion citizens uh, be in harmony? Well, we have about 8 billion people and are, are fighting each other every day. And I go, in a healthy human body, that means that there are 50 trillion healthy, happy cells and they're in a community. All cells have jobs, all cells exchange things, there's even a currency. So I say, well, let's look inside the human body uh, and see where our future is. And, I, and Greg is totally right. It's like, why do we think uh, that computer technology is any more powerful than our brain? It's not true at all. <laughs> they, they can't even duplicate what the brain is. So why would I put old-fashioned Model T parts in my head, which is, you know, uh, the, the new Tesla? Oh, okay. And uh, so I wanted to bring up something new. It hasn't even happened yet. Oh, that's how new this is. And I go, what is it? It's based on an observation that was made years ago after the Chernobyl uh, nuclear plant blew up. I go, what, what was that? I said... Well, the place was contaminated. No humans could be in there. No life could be in there. So they made the whole area around Chernobyl an exclusion zone. No humans can come here. Too much uh, radioactivity. Well, they wanted to observe what was going on. So they had a camera on a little robot thing that would go through the reactor and so that people could see what was going on. First couple of years, nothing was going on. But the third year, something has startled them. I said, what was it? there was black mold growing on the walls of the reactor. The black mold, like you see in the shower, in the bathtub, that same mold. And the scientists would go, what, something's living in the reactor? How can this be? So science wanted to find out what, what was it that the black mold had that allowed it to live in intense radioactivity? And the answer was, 
melanin. It's a pigment that makes them black. Okay. Melanin is a crystal. And what they found out is that melanin can take electromagnetic energy from the air and turn it into biological fuel. And they were living off of the radioactivity because the melanin would take radioactive elements and then convert it into biological fuel. And it was like, wow. And it, yeah, but here's wow. We have the same pigment. <laughs> we have the same pigment in our skin. And I go, you know, we always talked about it was shielding us from UV light. It turns out they underappreciated the role of the melanin. The melanin takes electromagnetic energy out of the atmosphere and converts it into biological fuel. And we know this in plants, for example. Plants take sunlight out of the atmosphere and then convert it into making uh, carbohydrates, fuel, okay? Humans have melanin, which is like the chlorophyll in plants, but it affects. it's really affected more by electromagnetic energies. I go, so what was all this coming to? They started to look and say, well, if it's melanin is generating energy, how much of that energy actually is available for us to use in our day-to-day -day life? Well, how did we all grow up? Eat your food. You need the food. The food's going to give you energy. Breakfast. Eat that good breakfast. You're going to get the energy all day long. And then you have this meal and you're going to build your energy by eating food. Problem. <laughs> and, and the problem is simply this is that when they did the research, how much energy is available from just the melanin part of our body? 85% of the energy needed for a human's existence comes straight out of the air. And I say, so where's the issue? It's like, well, wait a minute. I thought we were getting energy from the food. Well, I, I like to say this because I just thought about it before we got on. I thought, geez, I'm just about 80 years old. That's midlife human. What? Mid-life human. I say, why? Because the life of a human scientifically should be 150 years. I go, well, obviously we're not doing really good at that. <laughs> What's going on? Well, let's go back to the food. I go, what is it? When you burn fuel, there's always toxic byproducts from burning fuel. So, for example, you put gasoline in a car, you burn it, don't breathe the exhaust pipe. You know, that's the waste product. Well, guess what? When you digest food, you get energy, just like burning fuel, but you get byproducts that include something called free radicals, which are highly charged elements from, from atoms. Free radicals, the charged particles. And I go, this is the waste product. I go, yeah, but guess what? Free radicals punch holes in cells. And when they punch holes in cells, the cells die. So it says, wait a minute. Then the more food you eat, the shorter your lifespan. Yes, that's what we just are finding out. We're eating too much way beyond the amount of food that the food is actually killing us. And they said, oh, that can't be real. Well, they started doing uh, assessments and laboratory experiments. Like when I had rats in my lab and we were growing, uh, you know, the rats for laboratory experiments, uh, there's a, they're in a tray-like thing and there's a, a grill above them and we throw all the rat pellets, food for them, pile of it up there. There's, there's so much food that is beyond, you know, never a need for food. Uh, and they started to find 
what if you limit the amount of food? What if you just give them a subsistence amount of food? Not give them abundance food, but just a small amount of food on a daily basis. Well, you can see this is why it doesn't work in a lab because uh, it's easier to throw all the rat pellets in and leave it for a week and not deal with it. But now you have to adjust them every day by giving them just a little bit of food. They doubled the lifespan of the rats. Then they did it with birds and dogs and monkeys. And all of them lived exceedingly long past the others when they were given subsistence level of food. Subsistence means no supersize me. <laughs> it's just the opposite of supersize. And I go, well, this is amazing. Because A, well, let's think of all the benefits of this. Uh, how's your food bill? What if you cut it down to about 10%? Oh, that would be a lot better, right? That would be really good. Okay, wait, we're killing the rainforest. What? To grow more hamburgers. What? We don't need to do that. We need less hamburgers. Put the rainforest back in. Return the environment back to where it was. Why? We're destroying the environment to supersize us and kill us faster. And the idea is, where's the science coming from? not from the industrial sector <laughs> in the sense that yeah. uh, it changes how we live on the planet. And the idea about it is, yes, there are people that they call breatharians. Oh, these people don't eat. Well, maybe they cheat and eat just a little tiny bit, but they eat just a little tiny bit. And guess what? They have as much energy as you and I have. They can live their life with the same amount of energy that we have. And they're not really eating that much food. Now it's understandable. Well, I think that's true, Bruce, because uh, the Japanese, you know, that is part of their culture is as they get older to eat less food, not feel full up. And you see that in a lot of the blue zones where people are eating far less and certainly not a lot of ultra processed foods like are produced in the in the West. So that is a fascinating thought that you know, we we can be powered. We're a bit like a, a zero-point field engine. We can be powered out of uh, empty space. So I love that. I love that. It, it just helps us. It just helps us enough to understand that we can save ourselves while saving the planet. Yes. We save ourselves. Yes. Uh, and just think about it this way. Evolution does not make an organism that is so aggressive it eats up the rest of the world. Evolution, every new organism should have a lighter touch on the planet mm. because of evolution. Plants take the sunlight. Now humans take the electromagnetic field. I, I, I just want to close with that only because it says, wow. I could be a midlife right now. I have a chance. But as Greg will tell us, uh, uh, sometimes it's very hard to live past 100 because you lose all your friends. Right, Greg? Something like that. <laughs> you know, this is this is what, would... what the studies are showing. We, we are a society that's living longer now. And if we live, the, what, what the ancient Essenes, this is where this comes from, the, the mysterious sect called the ancient Essenes, they said we are in bodies that should last for hundreds of years but that the first 100 years are the most difficult. You know, people laugh when you say it, aha, you know, the first 100 years. And then they, they hear the reason why. Because in that first 100 years, you will lose, a human being will lose everything that they've ever loved and ever cherished in that first 100 years. They will lose all the friends, all the family, the pets, 
They'll lose the lifestyle because society will change. They'll lose ways of life. And it is the emotional hurt and our inability to resolve that hurt that actually steals from us the yeah. thing that we most cherish, and that's life. Because the hurt is, is the chemical stressors that yeah. actually de deplete the cells and deplete the life. But it's, it's fascinating that we're going to have to learn to deal with yeah. that level of, of hurt and what life means to us because we are on the precipice of living well beyond. I, when I was five years old, I told my mom I was on the 200-year plan. <laughs> and uh, and I, I think we all can. I, I love yeah. this world so much. I want to I see how it all turns out. I want to see all the beautiful things that we are, the seeds we're planting now. I want to see those nurtured and grow. I want to see all the good stuff that we know is, is possible. And it's going to take bet. some time. You yep. bet, Greg. And I'm going to just jump in here too. Um, yeah. One worry I have about living over 100 is my teeth. I mean, how are they going to handle this? <laughs> but I did want to say, I did want to say that all of these discoveries are really demonstrating something that many cultures before us understood that we are more powerful, far more powerful than we've been told. And the science is only catching up to the kinds of miracles that we are capable of that I've seen thousands of times now in, in Power of Eight groups. So one thing I want to throw in is community. And you were talking about communities of cells, Bruce, but I wanted to talk about what's going on now in terms of trauma. So we've all been pretty traumatized by recent events, but probably the worst of all is COVID because COVID isolated us more than we have in essentially centuries, if, if ever, that we've had to be so isolated and frightened of other human beings. There's been estimates in some of the studies that one in five of us suffered post-traumatic stress disorder from COVID, from being frightened of other people, frightened we were going to get it, um, traumatized because we had to be so alone People over 65, there's some awful statistic that one it's one in five, one in three see no one, no one except mm. on the television set. That's it. That is incredibly toxic for us. You know, the science shows, and I, I study a lot about communal effects. The science shows we were never meant to be alone. We were always part meant to be part of a greater whole. And we live longer, healthier, happier lives when we are part of a community, even joining a bowling group next year, according to Harvard research, will have your chances of dying. That's how important it is. But I wanna talk about, we were, we were talking about new developments and one of the new developments or newish developments has to do with the vagus nerve. A lot of people are talking about the vagus nerve, but they talk about it in relation to its controlling our sympathetic nervous system and our parasympathetic nervous system. So it's the longest nerve in the body, starts at the neck, it winds its way and makes a pit stop on every major organ of the body, and it regulates that fight or flight response or freeze response.
And so it tells us whether or not we're supposed to have our heart uh, beat faster or we're supposed to run or stay and fight essentially or rest and digest. But there's a third element of it too that's only really recently been appreciated. And that is the part of the vagus nerve that's involved in connection and feeling of safety. And I'll tell you why this is so important by telling you a story about Joy. So Joy had some terrible tragedies. She lost her little one when her child, when uh, uh, he was five months old. And then a few years later, her husband drops dead of an aneurysm. So she has this incredible grief. Her whole family dies in the span of a couple of years. So the doctors kept giving her antidepressants, antidepressants, because her body was all over the place. She was suffering from insomnia. She had terrible gut issues. She had all kinds of issues. And she kept saying, I'm not depressed, I'm grieving. And it's affecting my body. It's affecting my nervous system. It took years for her to find finally a doctor who said to her, your problem is your vagus nerve. Let's get that sorted. And they did all kinds of things with breathing and all kinds of aspects of trying to heal the vagus nerve. You can even heal it by humming, believe it or not, because yeah. it's near that part of the body and humming in your, you know, in your throat and things can affect that nerve behind you. But there were new discoveries that are even more extraordinary, having to do with groups and connection and altruism. There was a study at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill that by a woman called Barbara Fredrickson, who's been studying this. And she found when people spent just six weeks sending altruistic meditation, you know, being involved in altruistic meditation, sending love to other people, essentially, their, their vagus nerves totally regulated. And here's what happens when that happens. First of all, the vagus nerve also controls the release of oxytocin, which is the love hormone. You know, we release it when we're caring for an infant, when we're with our beloved, when we're having sex, all of that. When there was a, a wonderful study by a scientist called Ernst Fair, and I love this name, he's Swiss, because he studies fairness all the time. So I, I just thought that the name, you know, the name creates the person. So Ernst Fair does this study where he gives oxytocin to men. And he finds that after he does that, they are 44% more likely to trust other people in, you know, they did, they did these kinds of games of fairness with loaning money, et cetera. It made them a lot more fair, a lot more trusting, a lot more loving. And we find that too with groups. And that has a huge effect on healing because the vagus nerve doesn't just make us feel better or more trusting, but it also heals so many conditions that are related to an unregulated or a vagus nerve that's gone haywire. And that's what's happened to all of us via COVID. But the big healer, which I have found over and over again, are small groups, small power of eight groups. 
when people get together and do healing intention, altruistic intention with each other, it can regulate the vagus nerve. And that's probably one of the big reasons we see, you know, so many healings. We see people getting up out of wheelchairs. And that goes back to what Greg was saying and Bruce was saying, our ability to heal ourselves, our ability to create miracles inside ourselves doesn't require the latest in AI. It's already there. It's already hardwired within us. We just have to understand how to access it. You know, can I add to that? Just what you just said, I just want to... uh that oxytocin is a very significant aspect of any love experience because oxytocin is the drive to connect to to that love experience and we've been through this whole uh, lately that thing called raves and i say what are raves and they say well that's where they take this drug called ecstasy and all the people come together and they party and they share and everything it turns out ecstasy causes the secretion of oxytocin so when they take the ecstasy, they're flooded with oxytocin, which is what? Community, bonding, sharing, holding. And that was the consequence of what a rave was manifesting, not by accident. And just the power of it, an octopus is a solitary animal. It doesn't live with any other organ. It doesn't even live with any other octopi, <laughs> just themselves. But they have to mate. Otherwise, there's no more. So guess what? It's the mating season that is when oxytocin is released into the body. And with the oxytocin, that loner all of a sudden seeks the community of the other octopi. Uh, and again, so it reemphasizes everything Lynn is talking about is that bonding and community is very important. And uh, I, just one more real quick thing. Because, yes, we talked about COVID, we talked about the personal things that happened to us in relationship to community and all that. I just want to add one other thing. People don't recognize that. And it's a simple fact. We as people only have power when we are in community. A person alone wields no power. And I say, now just think back a couple of years ago when COVID was here. And what was the whole story? A global story. Don't talk to each other. Don't get near each other. Keep your distance. Put your mask on. Separate. No community. It was an experiment in one sense that revealed all the people in the world lost their power and handed it to a few people like Fauci and those people. They made the decisions for an entire globe of people because we were not in community. And that was... An interesting, I don't think it was a side effect. I think it was part of the study because we lost our power. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, Bruce, that's, this is one of those, another one of those places where all of these, these beautiful concepts, they all come together. And what they tell us is that we are much more than we've been led to believe. And everything, all the benefits that we're talking about right now, we all have the ability to self-regulate these. Uh, at will, on demand, by choice. And Len, there's another part, and I so appreciate you bringing up the the time of the pandemic and the separation, because there there are two, two other factors that come into this. One, not only were we kept separate from one another in life, but our rituals of death were interrupted. 
uh, tremendously. I lost my mom in the second year of, of COVID and they, they would not allow me to be with her uh, before that. They wouldn't allow me to be with her when she was sick. And even after she had passed, they would not allow me to physically be with, uh, with my mom's body because of the narratives that were going on around that. Uh, and we, you know, we found ways to to circumvent that, and uh, you know, it it all worked out okay. But but a lot of people didn't. And yeah. one of the things that became so apparent to me, Lynn, is that we as a society, and whether we're talking about one nation or the whole planet, we have never been given the opportunity to mourn what we all lost during that time of separation. Now, some people lost loved ones, friends and loved ones, but even even those who were lucky enough to not lose a, a friend or, or a family or loved ones, everyone lost freedoms. Everyone lost a, a way of life. And when I say mourning, it doesn't have to be a big emotional outpouring. It's just the acknowledgement that our world has changed and things that we used to do and that we appreciated are no longer available. We've never been given the opportunity as a society to mourn those things. And this is where community is so powerful, because even if society doesn't give you that opportunity, you get together and have dinner with your friends or you you have your meeting once a week or wherever it is. And just just say, yeah, you know, I miss that little mom and pop shop that used to fix my boots, uh, put new heel caps on my boots you know, I would walk in off the street, they would fix it, and I'd be out in 10 minutes. I, I miss that. And and things like that. So I, I think this is important. And I think this is a, a relevant conversation. Because even though COVID has passed, we know that we are entering into a time of extremes and greater challenges. And we will all be tested in ways that we either have been or maybe some ways that we can't imagine. And it will be the opportunity for us to draw upon these extraordinary potentials so that we can not just survive, but thrive to be the best version of ourselves. I'm, I just want to say one more thing as we, as we move through this conversation. There's a word for everything that we're talking about that has not been recognized in modern society in this context. And that word is divinity. For many people, divinity has a religious connotation. But when you look at the definition of divinity, Lynn and Bruce, we've talked about this. This is so amazing. Divinity simply means the ability to transcend perceived limitations. Not just survive, but to become more than. And look at this. Not They may not even be real limitations. Perceived. The programs that we have accepted that tell us that we are limited in our immune response or limited in, in the, the way that we think. So what's really happening is that we are all being given the opportunity to embrace the deep truth of our divinity, our ability to transcend perceived limitations, and, uh, and that there are programs in our society that want us to stay small and insignificant and powerless victims that shield us from that divinity. So the, what it says to me is the better we know ourselves and the better we embrace the deep truth of, of this extraordinary potential, the healthier choices we can make 
and the better we can navigate wherever life brings to our doorstep and be there not just for ourselves, but for our families and our loved ones and people that look to us for, for answers and for advice and guidance when, when life gets tough. So these are all of these things come together in this conversation. It's it's about us embracing the deep truth of what our ancestors called our divinity. Absolutely, Greg. I love that. And I love the idea that <clears throat> this is inherently within us. It's not something we have to go to church to adopt. Yeah. I think a church, when we started out, when you read the Acts about Jesus, his his messages to the disciples were about creating uh, and the word in the hellenic greek was a word that meant a called out group of people he didn't mean a big giant structure and he didn't mean a big cathedral he meant a called out group of special people who were attached to the idea of healing and could come together to heal and he talked about people doing that in groups it's been it's been altered hugely as it's been taken over by certain religions. And also, we've been made to believe that we are powerless. We don't have that power within us, or that divinity within us. I have seen it, as I say, I've seen it thousands of times now where people coming together in a small group miraculously heal each other. I'll give you a wonderful example of Esther. Last year, Esther came to a retreat of ours. Esther had stage four cancer, melanoma. She was given about three months to live. She came with her son. They had booked this retreat before she got diagnosed and they weren't going to come. And I recommended they come because she might get something out of it and she would feel better. She'd be surrounded by a group, et cetera. So they come. They go into, we held it in a stately mansion in the north of England, which is, it was like the, the runner up for Downton Abbey. It's this beautiful place. And they went into this antique library and they did a power of eight group for Esther. And Esther's a naturopathic doctor. And so she, you know, regulates her body. She knows, she knows her body pretty well. She does this 10 minute intention. That's all it is. There's no big priming. Don't need an hour to prime and get into the space. 10 minutes. And she comes out of it and she says, I'm healed. And everybody just nodded their head, et cetera, et cetera, and said, yeah, right. And, but they all felt something amazing in that 10 minutes. And her son then contacted us a few months later to say Esther had no radiotherapy. She had no chemotherapy. She only had some naturopathic foods and things. And the doctors could find who had found disseminated melanoma, found no melanoma anywhere. She was healed. One 10 minute intention. That's how powerful we are. But there are aspects of this that are really important to understand. We have this self-healing ability that <clears throat> both of you, both Bruce and Greg have talked about and me too. We have this self-healing ability. We have the ability to do a lot of things beyond our senses. We even have the ability to transcend time because time as any self-respecting quantum physicist will tell you does not exist. 
Linear time does not exist. We're in one big smeared out now. So I even do retro intention and it works. But the big aspect here and the important thing to understand and to move away from personal development and self-help is this kind of small community work together, power of eight groups, group healing, is about altruism. With a power of eight group, seven eighths of the time, you're sending intention to somebody else. And that in itself is extraordinarily healing. I'll give you an example of that. In the recent Israeli-Gaza intention experiments I ran, there were, I ran the three of them, and collectively there were about 30,000 people who participated. If you participated, write it in the chat, say hi in the chat. I always survey people afterward to find out how was it for you? And about a third of the people, as they always do, wrote and said, my whatever condition is, is improved or healed. One guy with uh, type one diabetes said his blood sugar is under control for the first time in many a year. All of that sort of thing. But also people seem to heal their relationships. About 40% say that they're getting along better with their estranged partner or their children who haven't been speaking to them for years or you know, their boss. And about half say that they're more in love with everyone they come in contact with. That single act, 10 minutes of altruistic intention is enough to create a, an extraordinary ripple effect out there in the world between everybody that each of these individuals affected by it come in contact with. That is the power that I'm talking about. And this is just a long winding around answer to you, Greg, of what do we do in these tough and challenging times? How do we stay resilient? And for me, the answer is group intention in a word, two words. Okay, Bruce, why don't you weigh in with something here? Staying resilient. We can't hear you. I can't hear you. Um, we can't, I can't, can you hear Bruce, Greg? I, no, I cannot. Um, yes, I can talk now. There you are. Yes. There you are. Hello. <laughs> Sorry for all that. Yes. Yeah. I, I found this quote when you brought it up, uh, Lynn, and, and it's so important because the natural state of biological organisms is forming community. That is the evolution of the planet. It's all based on community. I got this quote because I used it in my lectures years ago because I love the biologist. His name is Lewis Thomas. He wrote a, a, a book, The Lives of the Cells, which, of course, attracted my attention. But I just want to read this quote. It is beyond our imagination to conceive of a single form of life that exists alone and independent, unattached to others. It's inconceivable. That's, that's what I really wanted to get to. The, the fact is, community is what evolution is all about. And, and what we have to do is come back into community and say, well, how can we have trouble with community? And the answer is because we've been programmed to be afraid. And I say, this is where power brokers come in. I say, what do you mean? If you're 
programmed to be afraid, then that means you feel like you're a victim. If you feel like you're a victim, the first thing you want to do is find out who's going to help me because by victim, I'm saying I'm powerless. So we give up our power and we give it to somebody else and that they're going to help us do this, okay? Uh, and it's interesting because power evolved over evolution. There was different levels of power. The first level of power was just physical. You know, that caveman with the club, he's the boss. Why? Don't mess with him, okay? But then another form of power evolved, and that was the power of resources. Whoever owned the commodities that other people wanted, you could sell them. And then that was the money that gave them energy to buy the, the caveman <laughs> to protect. So they, they bought the caveman. And then came the ultimate power and the power of knowledge. And the power of knowledge uh, is the most fundamental thing because knowledge is power. And, uh, and then we started to find how manipulation of knowledge took away our power. Uh, uh, and it's interesting because when I went back over this and some people who are very staunch orthodox religious people may not want to hear what I'm going to say, but the interesting part about this was religion uh, of the Judeo-Christian version of religion today was based on losing your power. And I go, what do you mean? I said, because you were programmed that there was a hell. I go, who did that? Who saw it? Well, I think it's, I think there's a hell. I go, there is, who made that up? That's made up. But fear was, how can I not go to hell? And then the knowledge people, absolute infallible knowledge says, we will tell you how not to go to hell. It will only cost you 10% of your salary. That's called tithing. Uh, and if you sin, it may cost you a little bit more. But the point about it was, first power, this is my little credo thing, power mongers, those seeking power, there's a code. And I said, what is it? First, give them the trouble for free and then sell them the antidote later. Uh, and so you have fear of hell and they'll sell you presence of heaven. Hey, whatever it costs, okay? When it came to science, the same thing happened. Oh, you're a victim of your genes. You have no control. And uh, who can control my genes? Oh, the pharmaceutical company can control my genes. We gave up our power to take those stupid drugs, which are killing more people than they're saving. The reality is what? It's not knowledge is power. A lack of knowledge is a lack of power or a misperception is a lack of knowledge. We have been sold misperceptions, even COVID. Oh, it's going to kill hundreds of millions of people. It did kill people. But did it kill it because the virus was lethal? No, it killed it because people were already compromised. Their health was already compromised. The people that went into hospitals, had diabetes, 70% uh, were super obese, they had stress levels that were not controllable, and we blamed it on the virus. You know what? And they never told you the powerful thing was what? Healthy people didn't have the problem. Matter of fact, when they started testing, 40% of the people that were infected didn't even know they were infected, okay? Mm -hmm. So I said, so what was the issue? The power was uh, not take the drugs, not put the mask on, the power was Take care of your health, because then we are superseded and empowered to go beyond that. But if you're not in a healthy state, that's when we fight and have trouble and all the issues that we're doing. And, and this is why I'm so honored to work with you, uh, Lynn and Greg, because collectively, 
we can really provide some wonderful, empowering information to say, yeah, the world's chaotic, it's crazy. And the more you're afraid, the more you give up the power, the more you give up the power, the less power you have. And we find ourselves being victims when, in fact, as Greg and Lynn have been saying, we're not victims, we're creators. <laughs> and I go, then what's wrong with the creation? The knowledge or actually the misperceptions that you bought as knowledge. It's time to take it back. It's time to take it back. Absolutely. And, you know, um, we watched COVID wearing my other hat, What Doctors Don't Tell You. We have a, a monthly magazine that my husband, Brian Hubbard, and I edit. And we, through those four years, we called it all the time. You know, everything that we called at the time has has come true, I have to I have to say. And it was, as I like to call it, the sensible middle path where we were following, we were actually following the science and found, as you say, Bruce, it was about healthy immune systems. It wasn't about this big, you know, this virus that attacked randomly. And that is the information people need to have. But it comes to a bigger thing, and I wanna ask this of you, Greg, about polarization, about us trying to take back our power and trying right. to stay resilient. What do you really say to that? Because the powers that be are dividing us more than ever. And we face, at least in our lifetimes, an unprecedented number of challenges. So how do we stay resilient? Well, this well, there's two two questions you just asked, Lynn. Also, I'm I'm aware that we're probably coming to the close. We started a few minutes late, and I'm aware we're probably coming to the close. So I'm I'm going to be concise. Okay. What I want to say is that we uh, we are all living a, a time of a concerted effort to break the social bonds that strengthen us as families and communities and as society. Uh, where where core issues are being weaponized, they're important issues, but they're being weaponized to divide us rather than, than being talked about in a kind way that can bring us together. For example, 2011, we started with uh, the rich against the poor, uh, and, and we pitted a part of our society against another part. An important conversation, we need to have it, but we could have had it in a kind way that brought us together and made us stronger. Rather, it was weaponized to divide us. That tactic then moved to men against women. And then it became blacks against whites, and then Christians against Muslims, and then Jews against Muslims. And now it's adults versus children blurring the line between adults and children, blurring the line between the sexes. All of these are important conversations in our society, but they're being weaponized to divide us when we are divided and we feel alone, this is what we're talking about, we, we lose our community and then we become vulnerable. We become susceptible to the ideas, the multiple competing ideas and the multiple competing agendas of other power structures, organizations, governments, local governments, national governments, and even our friends or people that we think are our friends until until we have these conversations, you know? So, so yes, I think one of the things we do is we can only be divided, Lynn, if we allow our, ourselves to be divided. Do not allow 
those primal conversations and the narratives that are being driven uh, to divide us the way that they have been doing successfully in the past. And that is an active process. It's our responsibility every day uh, when we hear information that makes us something that we are not, when we hear information that leads us to betray our truest nature and our true values, we have to be aware of that and ask ourselves, where does that information come from? And is this who I want to be? Is this who I choose to be in the presence of this information? So that's, that's the answer to, to that question. In terms of resilience specifically, we need to be healthier than we've ever been. We always need to be healthy. But we are living and moving into a time of some of the greatest stress. We've got an election year coming up. It's going to be a very difficult, polarizing experience here in the United States. We're seeing what's happening geopolitically on, on the global front. Further efforts to divide us. We've got to be healthier than we've ever been. So, so physiological resilience, emotional, mental psychological and spiritual resilience. These are all domains that need to be addressed beyond the scope of what I can do here. I, I don't want to just leave people hanging. I do have, uh, I'm, you know, I didn't come on here to advertise anything, but there, I have a course called Radical Resilience on my website. If people are interested in those five domains uh, of, of resilience, it's more, <laughs> when I was a kid growing up in the 1950s and 60s in northern Missouri, in the Midwest of America, the idea of resilience was suck it up and get over it when you have a bad day. That was resilience. And now the Stockholm Resilience Institute has identified the five domains that I just mentioned and how we can address each of those for the greatest levels of resilience, perhaps that we've ever known, so that we can embrace what life brings to our doorstep in a healthy way and become the best version of ourselves, ultimately to create the best world possible. And, and I think that's what we all want, Lynn. So I'll, I'll awesome. stop there in the interest of time. Okay, great. And I'm going to just say one thing about uh, groups and resilience um, to remind everybody, as we said, one of the big problems is people being pitted against other people with slightly different beliefs. Look at what's happening with the whole uh, situation with Democrats and Republicans in America, with other political parties against other political parties everywhere else, uh, about uh, people who believe in, who are left-wing, who believe in more woke ideas versus people who do not. And I have found one thing that is enabled an instant connection between warring enemies, and I'm talking about Arabs and Israelis. I did one experiment, intention experiment with those people, I had Arabs in eight different cities in all of the Gulf states, and the ninth place was a batch of Israeli Jews in an auditorium. And after the intention experiment, before, they weren't speaking to each other. After, they, it was a love fest all sending love back and forth. And I believe what happens very quickly is when you do something altruistic, like intention to heal a place, and in this case, it was Jerusalem, it activates going back to that vagus nerve, that part of the vagus nerve, and 
enables you, one of the aspects of it is you become more tolerant of people not like you. So one thing that is healing, instantly healing. I'm planning one this summer, a big one where I'm going to have Republicans and Democrats all participating together. And I want to see this love fest afterward because I think this is a mechanism that helps divided people come together very easily. The second thing I want to talk about is just big changes always started with small groups. Every single movement, whether it was Gandhi in India trying to liberate himself from the British or Martin Luther King starting his freedom marches, it started with a tiny group. And it, it, every movement, every major social movement starts with a small group. So one thing we've done is put on our community site tools for people to do just that, to start little power of eight groups in their communities and use them for social improvement in their town, their city, their neighborhood. Because I believe that starting with small, and these are all free, um, I believe starting with small groups is the way to create a giant social movement. So whether it is just you and your neighborhood or you and hundreds of thousands of others. It has to come from the bottom up. It can't come from the top down. We've seen that, right? Yeah. Lynn, can you can you say anything about you, Bruce and I, December 21st and the experiment that's going to happen on the 21st? Yes, absolutely. So we are doing, we are meeting together um, and I we can send you, for anybody who signed up, we can send a link to connect. Um, we all participated in the movie, The One Field, and it culminated with my intention experiment. And we're all coming back to talk about it. There's some experiments with Roland McCratty from HeartMath. He's been doing a series of experiments. He's gonna be talking about that. We're all going to be talking on that live event. So we will share with you information about it. It is a free live event as well. You are having a, an event in January. Can you give people the website? You're going to be running a weekend workshop, is it? Uh, with Anita Morjani and Shamini Jane. And give us the date and a website where they can find out more. Greggy. Bruce, do you know that? Greggy. <laughs> I, I it's it's in late Jan. I don't have the schedule for me. It's in late January. And if you go to my website, uh, gregbraden.com, click on events and it will take you all the information is <laughs> there. But when the same, the same with Bruce, if you go to Bruce's website events, because Bruce, I've been on your website and brother, you, you have a, a really hot website. They've done a really nice job. Uh, <laughs> so, and, uh, yeah, we, <laughs> I don't have, I don't have that information in front. I didn't know we were going to do this. I apologize, but, uh, it's in January. We've got to go see these guys. And by the yeah. way, if you're anywhere near San Diego, all three of us are going to be speaking live. Um, I believe it is the 12th and 13th of January for the TCCHE, 12th to 14th. So we've got that too. And you can go and see that on TCC at TCCHE.com. But do check out their website for their fab fabulous event. I'll tell you also about my own event. 
I've got the Power of Eight Intention Masterclass. It's kicking off on the 17th of February. You study with me for a whole year. You get put in groups in your time zone and get coached by me for a whole year to learn how to use intention in your life, in groups, in your relationships, overcoming negativity, and much, much more. Guys, it's been so fabulous being here with you. And by the way, on my Intention Masterclass, the information is in the chat. You can go on my website, lynnmctaggart.com too. I've loved being here with you. It's been too short, Greg and Bruce. It's going to be so much fun to see you in San Diego. And with all of our travels, we bump into each other and we work together around the world. So everybody, do check out Bruce and Greg's websites. Um, it's gregbraden.com. That's correct. And brucelipton.com. Okay. And lynnmctaggart.com. Pretty easy, guys. Thank you so much. I, I just want to add one possible thing before we close, because we have a wonderful audience. And the idea about it is the it, it's the audience that represents the power out there in the world. And we're so happy to have an audience of cultural creatives, people who are looking for a better way to get through the struggles that are facing most people. So uh, it is our deepest appreciation that you're out there because you are people that are going to actually start creating the change and helping the other people who need what you now know. So uh, thank you for being with us and, and thank you for your help in the future to help us all create the heaven on earth that's available to us. I, I just want to second that and just say to everyone today, thank you for sharing part of your day with us. Thank you for all you're doing to be the best version of yourself. You're already doing it. And to create the best world possible. And Lynn McTaggart, thank you so much for making this possible day and the team behind you that is working diligently. So we've got good sound and good pictures and uh, we appreciate you all. Love you all. And I'm looking forward to our next. Love you, everybody. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you, guys. It's always wonderful to spend time with you, even virtually. And thank you, Robert, Laura, and my team for making this possible. See you all soon. Take, Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. In speaking about the power of community and small groups for resilience, I'm thrilled to announce that the doors are open for registrations to my long-awaited course, The Power of Eight Intention Masterclass 2024. I'm inviting you to join me and a select group of students on a year-long intensive journey into the secrets of intention and the power of eight. During the whole of 2024, I will show you how to unleash the power you hold inside yourself to both heal and improve every aspect of your life, whether health, relationships, finances, career, or even life's purpose. This year-long course attracts people who want to change and usually do so dramatically. I've been running my master classes since 2008, and in that time, I've helped many thousands of people to transform their lives. In the first six weeks of this year-long journey, through six two-hour live and interactive webinars, I put you through what I like to call intention boot camp to show you how to make intention an essential tool 
at your constant disposal, which can fundamentally heal every aspect of your life. You learn the 13 keys to intention mastery, how to use intention with relationships, how to pick up other people's intentions, how to overcome negativity, your own and everyone else's, and all of the rudimentaries of setting up a Power of Eight group and also running it. You're then placed in your own specially created virtual Power of Eight group in your own time zone with whom you meet regularly for an entire year under my ongoing supervision. They will be your tribe, your loving intention family, a true community of like-minded souls. And that's not all. There are also regular coaching with me during our live intention clinics for the rest of the year to ensure that you're applying what you've learned to your life with a maximum chance of positive results. Plus, you'll have access to record keeping to keep track of your progress and a special private community page to connect with all the other groups in the masterclass. So if you really want to stay resilient with intention and the power of eight, please don't delay. I only run this course once a year and it always sells out early. To find out more, go to my website, lynnmctaggart.com and click on the link at the top of the page directing you to the Power of Eight Intention Masterclass 2024. This is Lynn McTaggart helping you to live the new science. Thanks for listening. I look forward to connecting with you again.